This episode of the Designated Drinker Show is sponsored by Sipsmith, the quintessential expression of a classic traditional London dry gin. Bold, complex, and aromatic. Smooth enough for a martini, yet rich and balanced, making for a perfect gin and tonic. Gina pairs it with her Bloody Mary mix to make an amazing red snapper. Every aspect of creating this brilliant spirit is a meticulous research labor of love. So to find out more about the full Sipsmith lineup, check out sipsmith.com. Again, that's sipsmith.com. Is there a recipe for a life well lived? And if there is, what's in it? Well, you'll want to start with some learning and some growing. You'll need a good bit of reading great books and meeting wise people. You'll want to add some travel, but not all at once. Sprinkle it in as you go. And you'll probably want to put in more kinds of travel than you think the recipe calls for. Go far and go wide. It adds tons of flavor. Speaking of flavor, you're going to need some wrong turns and some roads not taken. But don't worry about when to put them in. They tend to add themselves. You'll definitely want to include as many memorable meals as you can squeeze in. And drinks? Tall drinks, short drinks, new drinks, classics. Variety is the spice of life after all. You'll want to add friends, family, and everyone in between. And while all that is simmering, you'll find yourself including experiences and stories without even trying. But that's okay. No matter how many you add, there's always room for more. You want to try to keep it on an even heat, but sometimes it'll boil over anyway. That's just how life is. And don't worry when your recipe doesn't come out just like everyone else's. A life well lived comes out differently for everyone who makes it. But whether you sip, slurp, or gulp, it's always a dish worth having. Welcome to the podcast that is raising the bar on craft cocktails. Yes, this is the Designated Drinker Show, and I am Louise Salas, the conductor of this boozy train that I will do my best to try to keep on the rails. Um, and with me today is my friend, my co-conspirator, conspirator, and if I am Laverne, she's my Shirley, <laughs> <laughs> the master of all things liquid, Gina. Hi, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. I gotta be honest. I'm just raising that cheese ball. That's bar. Seriously, you know, raising I, I bars. That's all we do. We have to start serving Cheetos with this uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, I got something odd to throw at you today. I'm gonna throw a question at you, a little test, if you will. All right. It's not a lot, just a little. Okay, all right. So, uh, can you tell me what Johnny Carson, George Burns, Frank Sinatra, R.S. Scott? Fitzgerald, Homer Simpson, FDR, yes, the president, uh, former, um, Humphrey Bogart, James Bond, Michelle Obama, and even the Queen of England have in common? I don't know. <laughs> they all share love with today's designated drinker. That love is gin, and that designated drinker is no other than Jared Brown, Sipsmith's master distiller. Welcome to the show, Jared. Wonderful to be here. Great, great. So, uh, you're, they're working you hard while you're here, huh? Oh, it's been a pretty rough road, this trip. A little bit of a whirlwind. Yeah. Well, we'll try to take it easy on you. And beautiful. This is a beautiful gin product that you make, sir. It is. Oh, thank you. So we definitely want to um, get in. You have such an interesting story that has so many facets. And we definitely want to get into um, the story of Sip Smith um, and your journey to becoming the master distiller there. I, 
it's so, so super interesting. But what I don't want to miss out on, and you ready? I'm going to take a deep breath for this. The many books that you've written, the many books that you've collected, the many herbs and botanicals that you so lovingly tend to, um, the days that you worked at the Rainbow Room with Dale DeGroff, how the hell do you know Julia Childs, Dalai Lama, and then let's talk about your early days behind the bar and that when you were 10 that you started experimenting and distilling. Where did you pick up the story about the Dalai Lama? I don't know. Is it an urban myth? No, no. Let's defunct it. I, if it's not true, no, it was but. just it was just a chance meeting. I was meeting a friend for drinks in New York ages ago, and he um, said, "Well, I got to go to this conference, but it's eighth floor of such and such building. Just come on up and grab me eight o'clock, and we'll go." So I go up there. I open the door. Uh, the crowd in this room has parted as this monk comes off the stage. Holy cow. And they're all bowing and holding white scarves, and he's walking along and touching them and coming toward me. And I realize <laughs> I'm holding the door open that he's going to be going out of. And I have no idea who he is, but uh, we make eye contact, smile, and I put out my hand, and he grabs my hand with both of his, shakes it, he looks at my watch and he said, oh, that's a beautiful watch. And he starts talking about it and he knows what year it was made and stuff. And I said, oh, you're really into watches. And he said, yeah, it's something I like to do in my spare time. I'm just fascinated by the tiny mechanics in them. And that's I like crazy. to repair watches. And so we're standing there talking for a bit. And he says, hey, forgive me. There's a car waiting down the stairs. And <laughs> I'm supposed to go to something else right now. But... It was really nice talking with you, and he shakes my hand again, and uh, and he heads off. And my friend comes over and says, Jared, how the heck do you know the Dalai Lama? And I go, who? Oh, my God. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> it took me years to figure out what he'd been up to at that moment, is he always talks about the fact that he is a man. Yes. And every single person in that room treated him like a god. They were standing there waiting to be blessed by this god. And having no idea who he was, I was the one guy who treated him like another guy. And yeah. I think he used that as a little example for the rest of them. That's which amazing. I thought was That's pretty insane. Funny. So, it's not the coolest thing ever. Hi, <laughs> just Louise. <laughs> Hold on, we knew that. <laughs> but I've, I've, always, I've always been terrible at recognizing people. My wife always makes fun of me about this because uh, back in the day, I'm a desk clerk at the Essex House as well, and uh, this woman comes up and says, I have an appointment to see a suite. And beautiful woman, long blonde hair, white t-shirt, it's a hot summer day. And I said, oh, could I have your name, please? And she starts laughing. And she looks at me, and I'm sorry, you know who your name is? And she's, Farah. Oh, good. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. That's great because, I mean, I, I'm i very similar. I just don't, I, I, people are people and you just go through your life meeting them. And yeah, um, yeah I would have been the same way. So I, I, might have been able to get I, fair, said, I might have been able to get Farrah Fawcett. I said, hey, there's a Ms. Fawcett here. She has an appointment. <laughs> <laughs> and by that time, she's doubled over laughing. And then, of course, she's inundated by all these 
other people who are coming up saying, oh, Farrah, how's Ryan? Blah, blah, blah. You know, people that she's never met before. No, and she turns around and as she's refreshing. walking away, she actually said, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As I was going to say, she probably found it really refreshing just to have like a normal exchange with somebody. Yeah. Same thing with the Dalai Lama. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, um, that I like. So, how, what about Julie Childs? And let's just get like all these oh. celeb drop, name dropping done. Well, <laughs> The first time I met her was also when I was a a desk clerk at the Essex House and working late uh, shift. I think it was 1985, and we were official hotel of Saturday Night Live. Oh, cool. So you'd always have the guys from Saturday Night Live coming in. Um, Dan Aykroyd would come in, usually wearing whatever he was wearing on the show, uh, it was a plumber, an electrician, or security <laughs> guard to slip by the crowds. Oh, yeah. yeah, so he could oh, come in awesome. incognito. And uh, I'd seen the Julia Child skit, and here comes clearly Dan Aykroyd in drag. Oh my God. <laughs> and I look, and sure enough, there's a reservation for Julia Child. <laughs> it's for a room. Uh, oh, I better fix this and move it to his favorite suite. Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, five minutes later, back in front of me, saying something that Mr. Aykroyd never said to me. Was, I'm sure there must be some mistake. I, I was only booked for a room, and that's a beautiful suite. <laughs> and at that moment, I realized, oh, my God, it is Julia Child. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said to her, would you accept the upgrade from a huge fan. I told her honestly, her cookbook is the most stained and abused book in my kitchen. Oh, that's awesome. And um, after that, she seemed to have all the time in the world. Nice. She stayed fairly frequently, and uh, whenever she came in, I'd try to be there to check her in, and she'd hang out and talk. That's cool. And she come downstairs from her room, she'd stop by before going out. Wow, that's And awesome. then later, when uh, my wife and I were uh, married, for one thing, when we were publishing books and doing a lot of writing, we ended up uh, on a bit of a book tour where they book fairs, and next to us would be uh, Jacques Pepin and Julia Child. Wow. And so duck out the back. And, wow. Uh, Have a nip. She told us, she, <laughs> int- she introduced us to the reverse martini. Yes, actually. Three and a half parts vermouth, dry vermouth, to one part gin and a big ice-filled wine goblet. Uh, nice big lemon twist on top of that. And the first one, she'd do perfectly three and a half to one. The second was about two to one, <laughs> one to one. And then she just put the gin bottle on the table and top people up. I love that That's a lot like... Dining with Gina, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Speaking of dining with Gina, what do you got for us? We can want you to change we're it gonna, up, right? No, we're going to change about all this. Yeah, normally we wait to the end to give you a cocktail, but because you've been traveling and um, I can't wait to hear more. Um, and we read a little bit that um, you're a fan of of um, cocktails, especially little afternoon cocktails. We're going, we are going to make you, in this country, a gin bloody merit, but a snapper, as we all know. And we're going to use your gin, which I absolutely adore. I use it at Buffalo Bergen, I use it at Suburbia, and I'll be using it at my new bar, which is... Um, about to be announced, right? It's about to be announced, but not quite yet. But, you know, I'm in the honor of greatness, so I'm going to just 
quietly make my cocktail and be silent about it. <laughs> so we're gonna. Uh, so I, I put mine a little bit heavy, just maybe like Julia Childs. I don't know. She isn't uh, an idol for me, right? So we're gonna use two ounces of the Sip Smith Gin, and then we're gonna use a half an ounce of lemon juice, and then we're gonna use my Bloody Mary mix, which is um, pretty, I would say, standard, just a little bit on the spicier side. Uh, for two ounces, which is um, tomato, horseradish, you know, a little bit of salt, pepper, and then we put a little bit of Tabasco peppers in it, not Tabasco, just not getting confused. And we're gonna put four ounces of that for each cocktail. And then I'm going to shake them and pour them and give them a little bit of a roll into a glass, and then we're gonna top them up with something special. Just for me, I think a Bloody Mary, oh, sorry. Um, a snapper, because we're using gin, should have, um, and I appreciate this, uh, more toppings than not. <laughs> and I know that that might be not the right way for Harry's Bar in Paris, and we know the argument of where did this come from. But it make, sure makes for a beautiful dish. I know, I don't, now some people will argue, why don't you stir your bloodies? Or any Bloody Mary snapper, Bloody Mary. I like a little bit of a shake just to incorporate um, all the flavors together and anything that may have settled or, you know, just kind of give it an overall preference. And I have to say, I am terrified making this cocktail because I know that you worked <laughs> with Dale. And when I made Dale cocktails, it is always a pleasure and a little bit frightening because I know that I might be in trouble for some reason or another because I did something with a technique that wasn't the way that he would appreciate it. Um, and being from Long Island, you know, I get the pleasure of seeing Dale and Jill a little bit more than most people, so that's nice. Funny you should say that, because the first cocktail I ever made for Dale was the worst cocktail I've made in my life. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, tell me, because you'll make me feel better, please. It was uh, St. Patrick's Day in New York. Uh -huh. I was tending bar at a uh, loft party somewhere around 21st, 22nd Street, and... Uh, about 50 people in there, all being rather obnoxiously drunk. It's St. Patrick's Day, you know. Of course. And uh, it was the days of the Cosmo, and the was the triple sec ran out. Oh no! And I looked around, and every single one of these people had brought green creme de menthe with them. So I thought, oh, oh, oh what, no. what the hell? Let's just throw green creme de menthe in there in place of it. Oh my goodness! You know, the same measure and everything. And uh, desperate just, times. Big shaker. I'm just pouring like four of them out at once. And uh, at that moment, I'm not looking up at all, but this hand comes in and I recognize that bartender <laughs> ring and that voice saying, oh, Jared, forgive me, I just got here. I haven't had a drink all day. I really need this. And there's me about to dive over the bar going, no! <laughs> In slow-mo. <laughs> he, he thanks me and I watch him work his way down to the other end of this big loft space. Sweating bullets, I can tell. Slowly, quietly, and I see him lose the drink and grab a beer. <laughs> That's right. That's when you know that you're pretty good. On that. that was kind of a nice way of doing it, though. I mean, he didn't throw oh, it he, on you. <laughs> oh, you know, he is one of the most professional people I've ever met and uh, polite. 
Yeah, I've been. I've had the fortune. Someone who always makes you feel better for having been with them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's no a nice question. way of putting. It. I got to meet him one time when we uh, interviewed him early on, and he was. And, you know, I'm not in your industry. I'm just the you know the host. Keep the conversation mm-hmm. going, and he was super gracious and wonderful and lovely. All right, Gina. There's, there's a reason everybody considers him to be among or the world's best bartender, and while anybody can knock out a good drink. What he does is he puts so much warmth yes. into it, and it, it's not just a drink; it's a bonding session when, when he's giving you a drink. Yes, and yeah, no, that I agree. Is what leaves you walking away feeling so much better for it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, Speaking about feeling better, what oh, do you got for us, Gina? Tell so us what the, you got. So bloody, so our bloody Mary, mm-hmm. um, a little bit spicy, and then it's done with us with the Smith, So it's basically not a bloody Mary, right? So it's called a snapper or a gin Mary, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And then I topped it with a little bit because Louise is from Hawaii, so we're going to give it a different topping. So it has um, two olives, a lemon, celery, traditional, and then of course a little bit of poke. Done with a little bit of Japanese um, set, uh, ginger um, <laughs> on top, so you can pick it up and eat it. So it's a meal and your cocktail. And if I got that on a flight, Jared, I think I would be the happiest person on planet Earth. <laughs> and please, you can always um, critique it and then tell um, Dale that I did the right thing. Because <laughs> he's gonna listen to this episode and be like, do you know how many parts is that? I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> All right, cheers, Sally. Cheers. cheers, mahalo. So good. Oh yeah, real tasty. Thank you. It's a little spicy, I know, but like I like a little bit of spice. So if you want Mm -hmm. a little lemon, I can add more to that to like cut out the horseradish. No, I think it's lovely how that works, isn't it? Yeah, how the the chemistry. Lemon will deplete the horseradish. Lemon will also take down the perception of salt. Yeah. Yeah. We um. Yeah, is no. that is that why you, you in a Bloody Mary you tr- t- typically see lemons or does that is all citrus does citrus act that way universally or is it would you say it's specifically lemons? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, no. I I mean I know it works two things it works with ginger and it works with um, it works with horseradish, but ginger and horseradish are both in the root family, so maybe it has something to do with that. I don't know, but I do love the fact that um, I heard that you're quite the gardener. Mm-hmm. So yes. that makes me yep. extremely happy because my friends call me a geek and I spend a lot of time, you know, growing things and picking things and whatever. So anytime I get a special seed or something, I try to sow it and like make it work. Uh, to me, as a as a gin distiller, it's really important that I grow botanicals to understand them. And I feel like I get so much better understanding of my ingredients if I've got them in the garden as well. So I grow licorice, I grow Oris Fiorentina, the Florentine iris flower, I grow Russian coriander, um, I grow angelica, uh, etc. One thing I don't grow is juniper, because juniper, to my mind, really has to come from the North Mediterranean. Uh, It was being exported by the Genoese merchants as far back as uh, 1250 AD. And it has a particular flavor, that beautiful balance of soft pine and sweet citrus that you look for in a gin. And so juniper, I'll always get from there. So instead, I've gone and worked every position on the harvest and in the sorting and production. And that was the way to learn juniper. 
do you think that uh, what do you think of American juniper versus Mediterranean juniper that comes from Oregon? I'm sure you've tasted it. Oh yeah, I can usually pick it out immediately in blind tastings uh, because it's got such huge sweetness to it. You know, it's almost a bubblegum character to it. And so, yeah, if I'm running down the line, I can immediately spot one done with American juniper. Yeah. And their, their drinks, where that'll work beautifully. Of course. But um, to me personally, if it's going to be a martini, I like it with the North Mediterranean juniper. That's oh. interesting. Yeah, and stay with the drier, the drier gins, absolutely. Yeah. So, if you had a gin, say from like Spain, or would they be doing? Mm-hmm. Do, is that the same? Do you know? Do they are they? Because oh, we had North, a, Spain is North Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, they, all mm-hmm. of the same thing that, that that's where juniper would be. The same. Like if you were taste, I guess mm-hmm. my question is, if you were tasting a Spanish gin, would you be able to find? Would that be the same characteristics possibly in the gin? Like, oh yeah, okay. very much. It's just cool. that. Yeah, the only difference between like I would. I mean, the argument would be. The distiller's hand at that point because that is the same juniper for sure yeah. so it would just be like how much residual sugar what are they you know how are they making it what's the, what's the sweetness they're pulling from it versus you know uh you know how much how the head and the heart where are you pulling it basically yeah head heart and tails that's and even beyond that this the still makes such a difference um, Can we talk about your still? Yeah, let's talk uh, about it. Our first still, Prudence, was a 300-liter copper pot still built by the Carl family somewhere between Munich and Stuttgart. A beautiful hand-hammered copper still. And uh, she got her name because at that time, Gordon Brown, uh, I think he was Prime Minister Exchequer at that point, was banging on about the need for economic prudence during a recession. And Sam and Fairfax had just sold their apartments to buy the still. And were joking about the economic prudence of going out and putting your life savings into a gin still. It's a risk. So that that first still was 300 liters, but now standing next to her are our two most recent stills, Constance and Verity. I love the names. Uh, Constance, because she's producing our London Dry with perfect Constance. Verity from the Latin veritas for truth. Because this is the true gin coming off of that still. And um, moving the gin formula from prudence onto Constance and Verity, um, some of the botanicals in ratio changed by as much as 25% to make the same gin. Wow. Yeah. That's an incredibly high number. Yeah. Just like, listeners, I'm you to know that that's not generally how it goes. It's very, usually very minuscule. Kind of like if you're cooking at high altitudes or sea level, you would change your salt just a little bit to get a rolling boil. It's kind of like to give you an like at-home version of what he's a, talking an about. An understanding. That's yeah. great. That's a great analogy. Um, wow. That's yeah. incredible. And it took us 18 batches to perfect the formula on the larger still. Uh, and it was only because we, we knew it could vary that much. Otherwise, we'd have been stumped you know, because you wouldn't think to push as far as 25% change in an ingredient. That's incredible. So do you think it's like anything to do with the copper that was used or? I don't know. It's just the surface area to volume ratio yeah. within the still. Uh, when you look inside and you've got a very different ratio going from the 300 to the 1500 liter. Right. Oh. But then the two, the con- the constants, 
to the Veritas is the same. The same. Yeah. Okay. But so it was just the size. Sorry, I thought it was metal to metal, and I was like, that's crazy. The two, yeah, but yes, no, it's still a huge variance and in like increase in volume for, for sure. Yeah. Um, one thing I have to say is that uh, I've seen pictures of you. I haven't been to your distillery, mm-hmm. but I've seen uh, photos of the stills, and they are well taken care of. And uh, sometimes some people don't take care of their stills so much or, or love them take them keep them the way they should be and there's like a certain amount of um you know pride and then the fact that you named your stills which i love just really shows your poeticness and now i i get it you come from that like well-rounded i'm from new york just so you know that well-rounded i've been hanging out in new york in the 60s 70s 80s kind of came over and like you really it's a special special crew that came from that time and that Mm -hmm. is you know, talk about the Dales and the Jills and, you know, and now the Jareds in my world. But, like, you guys have something different. You saw, like, this renaissance of a city that went from, like, you know, the underbelly of, like, the beast to the beauty of the artist. And, like, now just hearing you talk again, I'm like, wow. You know, it's I, it's an honor. It's an honor. Okay. Sorry. Well, I will, I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> well, the renaissance story is very similar to that of um, Gin in London, correct? You shared some stats <clears throat> with me about, like, days of yore and where it went and how hard it was to actually get a license at some point in time even though it's the birthplace of gin. Mm -hmm. Now it really is the birthplace of gin. Some of my latest research is digging a bit further back before King William of Orange ascended to the throne in 1688 and uh, famously um, stripped the powers of license and taxation away from the distilling guild of worship company of distillers throwing the doors open for an explosion of distillation where they had uh, by 1721 a working gin still or still in one out of four habitable structures in London. That's crazy. Uh, produced two million gallons of spirit in London that year. But digging back long before that, I'm finding recipes that were juniper-led, citrus-backed, spice-supported, uh, look like modern gin recipes, and these are early 1600s in England. So what they did bring back from the Thirty Years' War, uh, those English soldiers who had supposedly brought back Geneva, they brought back the name and applied it to this spirit that really wasn't Geneva, but that spirit really needed a new name because uh, prior to that, they were calling it Water of Fruits. <laughs> Imagine walking into a bar after a hard day's work and say, hey, give me a Water of Fruits and tonic, please. <laughs> or, a Water of Fruits martini, medium dry. Um, water of Fruits, snapper, done, I love it. It's perfect, right? That's too funny. You we have to make you a cocktail with that with some like uh, tomato water or something. I feel, and I, we have to now. <laughs> must. That's a must. That's going to happen for sure. And your journey to becoming a dis- distiller, which is kind of funny, you shared a little bit of this with me, started really early. No, I'd already done life. like three years of informal wine education. So it wasn't, it wasn't the first thing I got into. I didn't um, I didn't, when didn't you were get like into 10 until, years old. Yeah, that was 10. <laughs> I guess that's early. Yeah, that's a little early. <laughs> so when you were 10, you started distilling. The first time I ordered right? a drink in a bar, I was 11. Well, you know, that's the beauty of being it was, on the other the, side of the it pond, was the right? 70s. <laughs> it was a long time ago. It was a different <laughs> world. 
Um, I shouldn't name them and get them in trouble. No, what, what did, did you, you order? Oh, what did I order? A white Russian. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to get you to bed early. <laughs> so, yeah, the soda shop, the, 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 um, the soda shop of uh, Young Cocktails, for sure. But you know what? White Russians have their place. I mm-hmm. I think white Russians are great. Or a white spider, as you grow yeah. up. And, you know, and then later. It was more... Uh, Curiosity, because I had just made my first batch of coffee liqueur. He was eleven, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I wow. was playing with clay. <laughs> I know. I, I was only doing. I was eleven. Uh, probably be in trouble in Catholic school. Pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. That's what I was doing. I was getting Sister Trinitas was yelling at me. That's pretty much what was happening to me. I love that. Tell me, so I want to. I want to know what's what's our next. I want to. So we, we also let's talk about the books you and your wife have written. I mean, they're it's quite mm. impressive. It's something we've written something like thirty eight books. Um, something you know, give or take. A lot of a lot of different <laughs> subjects. There's a bunch of them on drink. Uh, there's a whole series on graphic design. We've written half a dozen travel books that nice. focusing on the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we wrote the Fromers, Vancouver, and Victoria. Oh, cool. Um, third and fourth editions. Fromers, Canada, the British Columbia chapters, ninth and tenth editions. Wow. Uh, there was a Northwest Best Places that we worked on and uh, Vancouver Best Places. That's awesome. Those were fun. So wait, how did you go? Can I back up for a second? How did you go? From you're telling me in New York, right? You're checking people in to the ex's house, mm-hmm. and then you meet Dale, and you're meeting cocktails. So, how'd you go from front desk and take the leap to the bar, or did you always take the leap to the bar and then took the leap to the front desk? I need to know are you the chef or, 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 or are you the host? Who are you? That's what I want to know. All over the map. I'm all <laughs> set to step into any position. Um, when the Essex house closed in 1990 for renovation, mm-hmm. uh, I was back in school full time at NYU working on a hospitality degree from NYU ah. and uh, decided I should explore the other side, get out of operations and got a job scrubbing pots and wow. worked my way up to dishwasher and then worked <laughs> up through all the positions in the kitchen to where I was doing guest chef appearances in Midtown uh, on a weekly basis. Wow. And um, a friend had said, you know, you should really get a job as bartender. And uh, the pasta dive on the Upper East Side, the bartender had said, yeah, I'd be happy to train you. And she handed me a empty bottle and a speed pour. And she <laughs> said, what you need to do is just fill that up with water at home and handed me a snifter that when you set it on its side, it was an ounce and a half. She said, when you can do a four count, and set that down, and it's exactly an ounce and a half, a hundred times in a row, you're a bartender. And I said, wait, but then I, I'm sure there's more to it. And she said, well, not much. What do you mean? I said, well, what about drinks? How do I get to know the, the drinks? And she said, well, there's a little secret. 90% of the drinks that you're asked for, they're going to come up and tell you the ingredients. I'm like, what? She said, well, what's in a What's in a whiskey and coke? Yeah. <laughs> What's in a gin tonic? What's in a, she just runs down as a vodka cranberry. Can you work that one out? And they said, yeah, but there are, other, there are drinks with names as well. And she said, oh, there's the trick. Somebody asks you for something, you don't know what it is. 
big smiles, say, oh, I haven't made that in a while. Let me just check the proportions. And that's what Mr. Boston's is for. And the Mr. Boston's book is right there under the bar. (laughs) And the first drink anyone ever asked me for when I was buying that bar my first day, man walks up and says, can I get a Negroni? (laughs) I smile and I say, oh, I haven't made that one in a while. Let me just check the proportions. You know, one, one, and one. That's showmanship, right? (laughs) And um, right at that moment, I thought it was 50-50 chance that it was a, a a mixed drink or a brand of Italian beer. <laughs> and then after I'd looked up and the other time I'd been embarrassed, it was one, one, one proportion. So I peeked behind me and said, oh, it's Peroni, that's the Italian beer. God, God. <laughs> Made him as Negroni and uh, heard those words that I've learned to dread ever since then, which was after he finished and he said, yeah, that was good, can I have a beer? Yeah. Yes. That's when you're like, oh man, either you messed up or they really can only have one. That's true. And actually, playing that back in my head years later, I figured out why he wouldn't have gone for a second Negroni in that place. And that's because the vermouth was sitting on the back bar with a speed pour in it. Oh, Uh, gross. Six months, 18 months, since Carter banned the three martini lunch. (laughs) I mean, that, that was like proper antiquity up there. That was a real thing, in, like, at least in New York, at least that's, I've heard the, the lore of it, the three martini lunch. Mm-hmm. That was like a real, and you could go home and you could drive to Long Island if that's where you lived. And you know, if no. you got pulled over, you got pulled over, but you didn't get really pulled over. You got told to leave your car and get on the bus. And I hear those stories and I'm like, God, that must have been a crazy time. But cars were also tanks then. I mean, you oh. drove a car that weighed, 3,000 pounds, and now cars weigh 1,100 Well, then, kids, you could take out a rhino then, though, your yeah, car. Right. <laughs> I, I got to say. I don't know that it was safer. I'm, I'm a lot happier not having drunks on the roof. Of course. <laughs> it's yeah, exactly. so much better yeah, today. Exactly. Yep. Thank goodness for exactly that. exactly what Uber is for. Grab a taxi, do your lift, whatever it takes. Walk. I jump, I jump in a, a limo to Newark one day, and this driver finds out what I do, and he says, hey, I get terrible hangovers, so I don't know how you do that. Um, how do you how do you avoid hangovers? And I said, well, what do you drink? He said, oh, whiskey. Okay, um, well, you should have a glass of water for every whiskey you drink. And he looks at me in the mirror for a minute like I'm an absolute idiot. <laughs> And he says, how the hell am I supposed to get through 15 glasses of water in a night? Oh, Wait, I think I know where your hangovers are coming from. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I know what's wrong with you now, sir. Uh, well, you know, there's not, that too. <laughs> uh, overindulgence is overindulgence, no matter whatever it is. Oh, yeah. Moderation is key. Yeah. you got to remember, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. <laughs> I, I, I was doing a guest stint for a few days, and I forget which city it was, but um, this one guy came up to the bar, and uh, I was doing cocktails, and so I offered him a cocktail, and uh, he said, oh, no thanks. Uh, I get bad hangovers from mixed drinks. I'll just have wine. Like, oh, dude, hang on, hang on a minute. I asked him what he normally drank, and he said, "Well, he normally drink whiskey and coke." And I was, "How long are you in town for?" And he said, "Well, I'm here for three days." I said, "So am I." 
tell you what, you want to be part of a little experiment. What's that? I'd like to buy you your drinks for the next three days. And tonight, I'd like you to drink just as you normally do. And I'm just going to serve you Cokes. And tomorrow, we're going to get on to the booze. And uh, that the next morning, he came in having had like four or five Cokes in the course of the evening. And he comes in, he's what the hell? I woke up with a hangover. And I said, yeah, it's not the booze. It's all the sugar, sugar. it's the caffeine, etc." that did it to you. And that night, I gave him whiskey and soda. I gave him highballs. Yeah. And the next day he comes in and he's like, okay, this is really weird. You know, I don't have a hangover whatsoever. Yeah. And I said, yeah, now we can stop blaming the alcohol and start blaming the sugar. Yeah, I'm into that. It's funny. It's Hold funny on. how we're finding like out blame, how much. I would like to blame the sugar for all the things I've done wrong. While I was sipping alcohol, it's just the sugar. Oh, no, hang on, hang on. Every time I see in the news like someone who blames alcohol for their behavior, you know, those kids somewhere in the American South a few years back who got into this habit of burning down churches and synagogues, yeah. and they pleaded for leniency and received it when they promised the judge they would never touch a drop of alcohol again. Now, personally, I'd like to have heard them promise not to touch a lighter again. Yeah, <laughs> of course. But no, it was, it was the alcohol. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, there's been nights when I've had as much alcohol as all those kids put together and I did not even torch a crash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Those, those things don't come through my head. You're right. You're right. That's true. That, that, that logic works for a lot of things today, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, it's very go. true. Very true. So let's talk about what, what's the meaning behind the name Sip Smith? Mm. I, I absolutely love this story of how this came about. Um, Fairfax's father was a renowned silversmith, and he watched us working so hard on the formula you know, for ages. And he, he said, you know, you guys are doing with gin what I do with silver. I take a formless lump of metal, and I bring all of my, my experience and my artistry to it and the tools that I learned to use and I apply those and I find form and beauty within it. And he said, you are Sipsmiths. Ah. And that's how the name came about. That's awesome. That's stunning, actually. What a beautiful story. I didn't know, I'm gonna also tell everybody that story. Yeah. Just so you know, when they asked me about the um, gin, people really, the, the bottle, if you haven't seen the bottles, um, you should have, I mean, you could check it out on the website, but. And what's that website, Gina? Um, you think I know it? Just it kidding. Designateddrinker.show. Designateddrinker.show. What is it? Uh, our website, yeah. designateddrinker.show. So if go. anyone, um, Gina's recipes will be there. Um, I always say And then, <laughs> and then um, we'll definitely have um, visuals of the bottles there so nice. that they can see, because they are very, very beautiful. Uh, we, we started out in a stock bottle and we saved up for, oh, I think it was about four years to be able to afford a custom bottle to afford a mold. Wow. Um, 
because they're not they're not cheap. Yes. And no, we not. we didn't have a huge budget behind this. It, it was all seat of the pants. I think we know a little bit about that, Gina. <laughs> when, when, we, when we started, it was just the three of us in this one car garage in London. Export was outside London. Distribution was Sam's moped. We blew the ad budget on a sticker for the moped. And to count our customer base story. on one finger for the first six months or so. Thank you, Giuliano of the Dorchester, keeping us afloat. Is that not the truth? Can we try the um, the slogan? Is that okay? On the next episode of the Designated Drinker Show, we explore more Sip Smith gins and learn how Jared's world travels influence the way he distills today. Until then, visit designateddrinker.show to get Gina's amazing red snapper recipe and to find out more about Sip Smith's gins. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the show. We'd love to hear what you think. And if you're interested in being a designated drinker, yeah, fill out the form on the website. That's designateddrinker.show. <laughs>